This is a question and answer period. And it is sort of the uh, follow-up on the three talks that we did on relationships. So if you have any questions on relationships, you might be thinking about them. As usual, there were several questions that came in beforehand, and so I'd like to <coughs> address myself to those, first of all. What if he won't go away? That was a question. <coughs> so have you had that problem? There's somebody who just won't go away. And... Maybe it's a relationship that seemed to have some value and now it doesn't. Or maybe it's someone who wants to be your friend. They stick too closely to you or they call you or they drop in on you. And uh, you do all the little subtle things like wrapping your finger and uh, looking at your watch and so forth. But they won't go away. This is especially difficult in the situation of a romantic relationship that is uh, temporarily ended. No relationship ends in any permanent sense. It's an illusion that we're separate and that we don't like each other and that our egos clash. And that, of course, will eventually be seen. So you will, of course, eventually see that there is nothing to fear in anyone there's nothing to not like in anyone. But there is a great deal to not like in other people's egos because each person has had quite a different personal history than we've had. They've gone through all these things that we didn't go through and so they're reacting to the very things we're reacting to in quite a different way. And we don't understand why they react that way, why they say the words they do, why they have the opinions that they have. I actually met a person recently who, who thought that E.T. was far better than Gandhi, uh, the movie. And uh, that's just fine. There is no right or wrong. You see, we, we actually think we know whether E.T. is better than Gandhi. But uh, this person's favorite movie was uh, uh, the Dustin Hoffman film, Tootsie, yeah. Uh, that had great social significance and meaning, whereas this person thought Gandhi was devoid of it totally. I didn't understand that. I didn't see. I couldn't see what this person saw, but it doesn't matter. So what do you do if they won't go away? There are some things, of course, that we do do that keep people from going away, and one of them is that we, we uh, let them down easy, so to speak. Or we tell little white lies, or we are, quote, kind. Or we hold out a little relationship. And, of course, this person who won't go away has fantasies just like you. They have fantasies. And so if you give hope in that sense, they, of course, will take, take it to heart. And their fantasies will continue. And they'll say, well, maybe it is not over. 
And one of the things that we must learn eventually is that it is not unkind to say no and to say no firmly. Never is it necessary to be cruel to someone. It is never necessary to be unkind. You can be gentle and firm and consistent and you can end something that needs to be ended temporarily in that manner. But we don't want to damage our self-image. We want to appear like a real nice person. And we think, well, maybe there's some way that I can keep this relationship going. I ought to be able to do this. I should be able to maintain this relationship. I ought to be far enough along that I can get along with anybody. But of course, you and I are not far enough along that we can get along with anybody. And there are people that do disturb our peace. And this is not a judgment. This is just the way that the particular egos interact. And of course we will eventually move beyond that. And we will give a welcome to everyone and they will not be able to wear out their welcome. That day will come. But we're not at that point yet. And so do not hand out a little relationship. Do not let, down, let people down easy, as the ego says. What you must do is to sit Look at this relationship, and if it is clear to you that you must step away from it now, then find a kind and gentle and firm and clear way to say that. This can be done if you will take the time to look at it. Now, with the influx of Eastern philosophy into this country, and with the obvious insights that have come with it, the very, very good insights. And with even the talk that uh, we do here and the, and the things that you can read in The Course in Miracles about stilling the mind and quieting the mind, it is quite easy for a fear to grow up about the mind. It's quite easy to become afraid of your very mind. Never are you called upon to look away from your mind. Your mind is like um, the face of Christ with a Halloween mask on it. You like that image? Yes. Yeah, right. okay. uh, it's it, the ego is is a is sort of a veil, an ugly veil, perhaps, over something, and. The more deeply you go into the mind, the more deeply you enter your actual identity. You make contact with the presence of God. Never be afraid to look at any thought. As you familiarize yourself with your mind, you will find that your thoughts are indeed horrifying and shocking. They will, you will see more murder in your mind then not less. Because the ego is pure murder. It wants everyone to die before you. Now you don't have to tell yourself that. Let these insights come to you gently. But do look beyond 
this first layer of thoughts. Don't, you see, if you react to a horrifying or an embarrassing or a licentious or a greedy or a selfish thought, you are claiming it as you. You are identifying with it more intensely. Why else would you react to it? If it were not you, you would simply see it was not you and you wouldn't react to it. But by reacting to it, you are saying, this is me. This is how I feel. This is the way I am. So do not turn from any thought. Look deeply at it. You do not have to analyze it or try to get rid of it. But in quietness, preferably with your body stilled for at least a few seconds, look at the thought. And you will see how silly it is. And you will know it's not your thought as you look steadily at it. And as you look steadily at it, this gaze will form a hole in the ego. And you will drop into light. Your calmness dissolves the veil, the mask, the ugliness, the silliness, the insanity. And you enter into light along with the quietness. You see, quietness is not absence of noise. Quietness is another, God, another name for God. Of course, we don't sense this in the beginning. But that, that's a fact. So you look quietly at this person. You're having a very difficult time being around them. They will not go away. And you simply ask yourself, what do I want to do about this? And your little book of tricks have a full page devoted to that one. What do I want to do about this? There isn't any problem that you cannot walk beyond if you will, in silence, in quietness, in calmness, ask yourself, what do I want to do about this? This is much preferable than trying to get some sort of psychically tinged guidance. And one of the unfortunate things that you see now with people on a spiritual path is that they sometimes get together and they pray about some external event and how, what they're supposed to do about it. And then everybody opens their eyes and they say, what did you get? What did you get? This is not the way to go about it. Peace is the way. And God has nothing to do with taking positions on all these silly issues. If you will simply look at your peaceful preference, you will see what to do. You don't have to get some sort of extraordinary message or instructions. Just look in peace. and See what you want to do about this. Don't be afraid to look in your heart. In your heart is the answer. It isn't the answer in the sense that it says, pick up the phone and say this, this, and this to so-and-so. It's not the answer in that sense. It's the answer in that it starts you out on your journey. You must take, take X number of steps to get around any problem. And the fact that someone won't go away is a problem. It will take you so many steps to get around it. <clears throat> Maybe you'll get around it in one step, but probably you won't. So when you look in your heart, 
you are then pushed out of the nest and you begin to fly, but you haven't arrived at your destination yet. And your peaceful preference says, try such and such. If it doesn't work, it doesn't matter. You see, we're so terrified of making a mistake. So you try such and such and the person doesn't uh, go away. Or they get offended and they scream at you and you think this is a mistake. Should I break up was another question. Should I break up with so-and-so? It's the reverse side of the same coin. I have seen many people try to break up or try to decide whether or not to break up with a, a particular person. Now, this doesn't have to just be a romantic relationship. This can be a, a, a friend. So now possibly you are not at the stage where you you know for sure that you should step away from a relationship. You're at the stage in which you don't know. You're deeply confused about this. And of course this can apply to whether you should move from a city or quit a job or anything else. The mistake that most people make is try they try to make some eternal decision about these things. And I've seen very spiritually advanced people do this, and I have never seen one of them succeed. When they are caught up in an infatuation, in a, in a romantic relationship, which for most of us, it, it cannot be avoided at this stage. You will eventually not hypnotize yourself in that way. You will see that, that you... That you you can have love without having all this uh, madness that goes along with it. But most of us are not at that point. You're going to fall in love and so forth. But the relationship is killing you, and so what are you going to do about it? Well, one thing you should understand is that you don't have to do anything permanently about it. As a matter of fact, it is generally always best not to do anything permanently about it, but to simply consult moment by moment what you want to do. Because otherwise, the ego will torture you, torture you with this question. Should we get a divorce? Or should we get married? Or should we break up? Or what should we do? <clears throat> Why does that have to be answered? It has nothing to do with now. Just see what you want to do now. Do you wish to call this person now? Do you wish to accept the invitation for the date now? We do not have to have external consistency. As a matter of fact, you cannot have external consistency and have internal peace at the same time. Your internal peace will occasionally cause you to have what will appear to be a quite zigzag course in the world. So answer the question now. You could always find out whether or not you want to call this person now, whether you want to accept the invitation for the date now, whether or not you want to drive over to their house now, whether or not you want to go to a particular place and, and, and happen to run into them, whether you want to daydream about them can be answered now. You don't have to make a decision about should I daydream about so-and-so. 
just ask yourself, do I wish to daydream about them now? There is no mistake to make. We're not in a minefield. Don't be afraid of making a mistake. A mistake is simply a way to learn something. Everything you do is a mistake. <laughs> the only thing, the only real mistake you are making is thinking that one mistake is more important than another mistake. <laughs> What should we talk about? Is another question. So, this is a this is such a typical question. People on the spiritual path. Well, what do I talk about? I'm not supposed to gossip and so forth. <clears throat> you can talk about anything if your words come from peace. Peace is the goal. Peace is the only thing we need to concentrate on. Never is there a question of behavior. It's a question of what can you do in peace. And what you can do in peace will change, of course. So let your words come from peace. Be relaxed. Enjoy the conversation. Be happy in this person's presence. Don't rush into words. As we've said before, don't fill the air with words. Fill the air with peace. Don't be afraid to pause a second before you speak and see where the words come from. And let them come from a gentler place inside you. There are some things that are usually good to avoid. We've mentioned them before here. Almost always the ego misuses questions. It is, Of course, you don't have to make a fetish of this. But generally speaking, it is not good to ask another person a question. If you'll just look at this, this is generally an ego device. Of course, it's not always an ego device, but most of the time it is. Even more so is kidding. Kidding is almost always an attack. The very definition of the word includes that. Attack, an attack for fun. A fun attack on you. <laughs> and this is so generally accepted that, of course, we laugh as we are crying because we're supposed to laugh because we've been kidded. You see. We've mentioned here some of the more unfortunate kinds of kidding that are very, very uh, prevalent. Parents kid about not wanting to be with their children. I hear this almost daily. They kid about not wanting to be around them. And what can they do to get them away from themselves for a while? And have some peace and quiet. Even as the couple is trying to have another baby, they are kidding about how to get away from the one they've got. I've seen this over and over again. They don't realize that they're doing it, and everyone laughs, but there's a great sadness in that. I'm sure it's obvious to you what a prevalent fear there is about children right now. I don't know how this 
came about, and it doesn't matter how it came about, but everybody's scared to death of children and being with children, and should they have children, and how should they treat their children, are they going to damage their little psyches and all this stuff. This is not necessary. So just see that you don't want the kid about not being with your child. Another unfortunate form of kidding is kidding about your mate or your spouse. You're so glad that they went on the vacation. You know, so-and-so's out of town. And so you tell everybody, boy, I'm just having the greatest time and so forth. This means you don't want to be with this person. This is not how you feel in your heart or you wouldn't be in the relationship at this moment. If you're in the relationship, it still means that it's the most peaceful thing for you to do at the moment. You may change two minutes from now, but right now, if you're in the relationship, then of course it means it's the most peaceful thing for you to do. And so we don't kid about wanting people to be away from us. Because you see what this leads to? This leads to this other unhappiness about when so-and-so so retires and now they're home all the time. We've been kidding for 20 years about not wanting to be with them, and now they've retired. We have no choice but to think that this is a tragedy. Of course, you listen, you're talking. It's a wonderful thing to listen. Listening is love. There is no difference between listening and love. Believe what the other person tells you. Respect what the other person tells you. So often this does not happen in a, in a close relationship between friends or between uh, lovers <clears throat> and things like that. There, there's not a respect for the other person's opinion. We don't really believe them, what they're saying. Another good thing to remember is that you want to respect the other person's mind that you are speaking to in this conversation, no matter how casual the conversation or offhand the situation appears to be, you wish to respect the other person's mind as if it were yours. Please notice that you will say something to another person. You will trigger a train of thought in another person's mind that you wouldn't think of triggering in your own mind. Be careful what you say, not fearful, but be careful and respectful what you say to another person. Don't say things that are not important. Now, I don't mean that they have to be weighty and spiritual, but don't, don't think that there is some happiness in suddenly ceasing to be a teacher of God, which most of you are. Teacher of God is simply someone who has decided to be a teacher of God. That's all a teacher of God is. And most of you have decided to be a teacher of God. There is never a reason to stop being a teacher of God. To be a teacher of God, how many people here have gone to Dr. Shaw? Okay, not, not very many of you. Here is, a, here is a man who is very, very happy and peaceful. He's, uh, this was, uh, I've spoken about him here before. You don't have to seek any of these people out. I'm not asking you to do that. They don't want you to seek them out. Uh, 
But here is a person uh, who happens to live in this city. He was uh, Gandhi's physician, and he was he was a uh, an Indian Swami, and so forth. He's obviously quite far along on the spiritual path. And or those of you who saw uh, the Dalai Lama when he was here, or have seen any of these people who are obviously quite far along, do you notice how much they giggle, and and how much fun they have, and and how impossible it is to offend them on these, you know, if they happen to show up on a talk show, because the Dalai Lama was actually hooked, he was walking outside or something, and Tom Snyder rushed out and got him up there, <laughs> which was just fine with him, and he just giggled everything Tom Snyder said, it was just wonderful, and Tom, Tom Snyder want, started inquiring into his sex life, and he just thought that was just the funniest thing he'd ever heard. <laughs> So to, to be careful what you say and to remain a teacher of God is to be happy. You lose nothing by being a teacher of God and remaining a teacher of God because a teacher of God teaches the cosmic giggle. <laughs> One more thing. What should we talk about? One more thing. Don't discuss your relationship. Please don't discuss your relationship. <laughs> there is never a reason to discuss your relationship. It is always ego to discuss your relationship. And the corollary to that is don't talk about spiritual subjects. Now, of course you can occasionally talk about a spiritual subject, but most people misuse that especially if they're trying to form some sort of relationship or hold one together or something like that, you don't have to talk about spiritual subjects ever. If you can do so with a lightness of heart, does God talk about spiritual subjects? This is so ridiculous. Words have nothing to do with the truth. It is a great stillness. It is a peace. It is a music greater than any music you have ever heard in your life. It has nothing to do with concepts and, and ramifications and fine points of philosophy and doctrine and all this silly, silly stuff. It's a great, great stillness and a peace. It's a love that blankets everything. There's not a word spoken in the midst of God. What, what need is there of a word? There's no separation. Why would there need be a word? So once again, you don't have to make a fetish of this. If there's something you want to talk about uh, spiritually, you can do that. But you cannot talk about your relationship. <laughs> My husband won't change, and I won't leave him. That was basically the question. It took much longer for the person to phrase it, but that was it. So what I suggested was that the person, uh, in, in some religious movements, in quite a few, uh, there is a central person who assigns who you're to be married to. Uh, Yogi Bhajan does this, for example. Uh, he's very intuitive and he's very good at this, fortunately. 
He has a good instinct about this. And Asa also has a very good instinct about delaying a marriage that comes to him, that someone, two people, because I know a, a friend of mine, a Sikh out there, who wanted to marry a particular woman, and uh, uh, every time they go to Rogi Bhajan, he said, oh, I think this is just one, well, let's just wait just a little bit. He's always given a little reason for waiting. It, it was so obvious this would have been a total disaster, this marriage. <laughs> then he assigned someone after the relationship parted, the people parted, then he assigned. And that's worked out real well. But it doesn't always work out real well. Uh, and, uh, of course, there used to be assigned marriages all the time, and there are there are situations in countries and societies where this takes place. And we've talked about your being a communist agent, for example, and you're supposed to marry someone, you're supposed to form this wonderful relationship with them until you're given your instructions. And you could do that. No, don't you know that you wouldn't have any problem doing that whatsoever? If these were your instructions and you were really a secret agent, of course you would get along with this person famously. You would avoid all the things that would cause discord in the relationship, you see. If you had been assigned a marriage and you couldn't do anything about it, that's just the way it was, you would accept it. And that's basically what I told this particular person. She couldn't change her husband and she wasn't going to leave him. And so, okay, then just accept your husband like you accept the weather, you see. <laughs> and so the cloud front moves in, and it never shines in ever again. Well, you would adjust to that. We all do. <laughs> just the way it is. <clears throat> you, you adjust to having to walk up this long hill and to get in here, you see. Sitting on these chairs and so forth, you probably don't even think about it anymore. Ha, ha, ha. This can be done. It takes a great deal of effort to do this because you will, because at this particular time in our history, there is a tremendous emphasis on getting Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright, Ms. Wright or something like that. There's a great deal of emphasis on that. And that we, we, we have all these things that ought to come to us from the relationship. We have all these rights. And, of course, the person never gives us everything that's in Cosmo. Just not there. And so, we are always unhappy. But if you just say, this is the way it is, let me bless so-and-so, why would you do such a thing? Because your goal is the peace of God. And it doesn't matter what the weather is, or what city you live in, or what your job is, or what you're wearing, or what someone says to you, or whether they have something or don't have something in the grocery store, or any of a hundred thousand other things that we allow to disturb our peace. None of that makes any difference. It doesn't really matter who you're married to, or who your child is, or what your age is, or whether you're sick or not sick, or whether you're about to die, or whether you've just entered puberty. None of that matters. If you will make the peace of God your single goal, you can pursue it in any circumstance whatsoever. 
As a matter of fact, you will not wake up until you can do that. It's a good thing to see what disturbs your peace. It's a good thing to see how easily your peace is preempted. By what? Some traffic condition? And so if you have made the rule, I cannot change my spouse and I will not leave my spouse, then that's just fine. You can sense that that's the way it's going to be for a while. So accept it and love them. There is enough to love in anyone. This is a question that comes up very often in counseling couples. Usually the man brings it up. I'm not interested in sex anymore. I'm losing interest in sex. And so the man's very concerned about this. What do I do? What do I do? This, of course, can apply to anything. I'm no longer interested in my career. I'm no longer interested in uh, uh, my art. I have all this talent as a composer. I'm no longer a composer. I've lost interest in it. This is a terrible thing, your ego says. A terrible thing. Surely it's a terrible thing to lose interest in sex. All right. Now, it isn't necessary to be interested in something in order to enjoy it. There, there was a little girl that lived next to us who got a, uh, near us, who got a uh, little uh, gift of, of dishes and cups and things. You know, the children get little toy cups and dishes and placemats and all that. And she was very interested in washing dishes. Very interested in that. When she becomes 40, she won't have that same interest. You see? But she may enjoy washing dishes as she's never enjoyed it before because she brings her mind into the present. It isn't necessary. You see, our body doesn't have to go off. We think that the bo- we think our body is some sort of ravenous beast that must constantly be thrown T-bones or something. <laughs> One of the things we have to learn is that we are in control of our body. Now, the the ways the the there's sort of outlying ways that we're in control of our body that are very difficult to see, and it's best not to try to see them at this point. Such as, you choose what illnesses your body has, and so forth. That's very difficult to see. There's no reason to even concern yourself about that. Start with what you can see. That you decide, for example, let's say you're walking down the plaza, and a, a drunk steps up, and starts insulting you. Maybe everyone here has gone through that experience sometime in their life. A drunk person starts uh, hurling insults or asking inane questions or something like that. Now, what is your decision? What is your uh, option at that time? You have the option of fighting them, if you wish, or preparing to fight them, or to be insulted. But they're just a harmless drunk. But you might actually think of taking offense. 
for a moment. You may think, I should take offense at this. And then, having made that mental decision, your body will respond as if this person is an actual danger. And your heart will start pumping faster and your blood pressure will go up and, and your muscles will tense and all kinds of things. Now, here's where your conscious mind comes in on the thing. It looks at your body, which is going all like this, and it says, I've got to do something about this. You don't have to do anything about it. You're the, just the one, who, you're just the person who told it to do it. I was driving down uh, St. Francis. I was in, uh, I was going to turn left on Tonto Road. And uh, there, uh, I was, there was a car driving next to me, and a, and a, a pickup truck came up. Gail and I were together. A pickup truck came up behind me and started tailgating me. Uh, I knew what he wanted. He wanted me to get over. Now, to get over, I, would have had, I, would not, I couldn't be a good old boy from Texas. <laughs> now, and I would, have had to, I would have had to sped up and gone around the other car and so forth. Uh, but the car that was on my right was going slower than I was, so eventually there was some room for him to get around me. So he got around me, and he got right in front of me, and he leaned back through his window, and he started, I won't show you all the things he started doing, <laughs> and uh, motioning that I should get over and so forth. And uh, being on a spiritual path, I, of course, just uh, calmly appointed uh, that I was going to go left, you see. I thought that had taken care of. I was very proud of myself. Uh, but he decided that he would watch to see that I actually turned left. He didn't, didn't believe me. Well, it was, it was, there was a little ways to go yet before I turned left, but eventually he did see me turn left. Now, was that the end of it? No, it wasn't the end of it. My body was now going like this. I thought I had dismissed all this. You see, I'd done this little thing with my mind. And I said, this isn't important. But my body didn't say that. So what was I going to do about that? What should I do about my body? Now, you see, here we're in the situation of thinking that we have to be dictated by what's going on in our body. We just told our body to do this. I remember once I was climbing a, a mountain with my brother. We are climbing up a, a waterfalls. Ridiculous thing to do in Colorado. We are way high up. A lot of people have been killed trying to do the same thing. And uh, suddenly, I, I told myself, I'm going to die. <laughs> it was just a fleeting thought. Fleeting thought, I'm going to die. Now, my body froze. I could not climb any further. All the energy went out of my body and so forth. Now, at that point, you do not have to do what your body seems to be telling you because all it has done is echoed what you've just told it, you see. And so, if your body tells you you're not interested in sex, this has no more meaning than it tells you you're not interested in driving a car anymore. Are we going to sit home and not get groceries or something? You see? We don't have to be dictated to this way. Well, there's several other questions here. Uh, but I, I think what I'd like to do, since we've only got about... Uh, 20 minutes left. Rather than answer these, I want to give you all a chance. So uh, if there's a question you'd like to ask about relationships, I'm going to ask you to confine it to relationships if you would, because we have general questions and answer periods for general questions. But if you have a particular question about uh, 
relationships. Uh, why don't you uh, ask that now if you'd like to? We'll discuss it. Question concerning difficulty in responding to another's need of oneself. Right, that's very similar to so-and-so won't go away because they seem to need us and we sense this and it seems almost cruel to turn them <coughs> down. Or you may have a situation where a person seems to need something from you. For example, you may be in a marriage and the person seems to need sex from you or seems to need to hold hands, or seems to need to have you go out to X number of parties in the week, uh, or seems to need to talk while they're driving in the car, and you don't like to talk while you're driving the car. You want to be spiritual and meditate. Um, but they seem to need that, you see. Uh what has happened is a judgment. We've, we've accepted a judgment. We think there's something better to do. We really think it's better to meditate than it is to talk in a car. And that's ridiculous. We think it's better to meditate than it is to make love. And that's ridiculous. We think it's better to stay home than it is to go out. Or we think it's better to go out than it is to stay home. It doesn't matter which side of these things you look at. It is not more spiritual to stay home. It's not more spiritual to go out. It's not more spiritual to hold hands or to not hold hands. It's not more spiritual to say I love you or to not say I love you. But it is definitely not spiritual to consciously and consistently withhold anything from another person who wants it. Now, this does not mean, of course, that you have to do something that you don't want to do and that's just going to shatter your mind to do it. There's no, you don't have to force, there's no sacrifice here. Once again, the way around these problems is to look deeply in your mind. It isn't to embark on some sort of external uh, reformation of your personality. And so let's say, for example, that that this person requires, seems to need physical affection from you in some form. Holding hands, or sitting close, or hugging, or something like that. Notice that you have decided to withhold that from the person. And tell yourself there is no, there is no spiritual value in your position. Doesn't mean you change your position. Just see that there is no spiritual value in withholding what another person thinks of as love. Now, they do not think of love as something that's going to hurt them or is going to hurt someone else. And so, of course, you are not in love with someone if another person is being devastated by this relationship. If you have a relationship and it is crushing another individual, if you appear to be taking one person away from another person, it's best not to kid yourself that this is love. This isn't love. Love doesn't cause that kind of situation. It may be a situation you can't avoid. You may, have, you may be carried away with your feelings and you can't do anything about it. But certainly don't tell yourself, don't trick yourself into believing that there's true love 
in a situation like that, true love doesn't have that effect on anyone. It doesn't exclude one person and bring two other people together. It doesn't mean you feel guilty about it if you're participating in that. It just means that you be honest with yourself and you look in your heart and you don't deceive yourself and make the situation even worse. It is very difficult to convince people that by looking in their mind and seeing what's in their heart, change will occur naturally. Simply see that you are withholding what this person thinks of as love. If you will look at that, and if you will be aware of every time you're doing it, you will very gradually relinquish that and you will slowly begin to do some of the things that delight this person. One of the examples that we've used here is how children love to play. Children experience love by being played with very, very young children. They just love to be played with, and they feel loved when they're played with. But adults often don't like the way that children play because children like to play in a very active, repetitious way. And adults like variety and quietness, generally speaking. And so it doesn't seem to fit. But if you see that your child lights up, and if you just notice that you would like to play right now, and you go ahead and let yourself play, even if it's for two minutes... And then you see that your sense of enjoyment has ended, just as you see that you don't want to hold hands anymore. You don't have to continue holding hands with someone out of a sense of sacrifice, but maybe suddenly you feel like reaching over and taking so-and-so's hand. And you know that they would like this. Or maybe you feel maybe you're sleeping with them in bed and you don't like to touch them. This wakes you up, you see. You don't think you can go to sleep if you're physically touching this other person. But you don't feel that way all the time. There is one evening when you're in bed and you feel like sort of moving your leg over and, and, and touching this other person. And the ego says, don't start a precedent. Withhold everything because you're afraid you might have to give too often. Now, if you, that of course is pure ego to do that, you see. So you go ahead and give the little that you can. Watch your sense of enjoyment. And as soon as it ends, then you don't, you, you stop what it is. If you are clear and firm, the person will not be too offended by this, you see. They don't, they're not going to necessarily turn to some raving maniac because you reached over and held their hand. Another question. A question concerning the relationship between love and feelings or emotion. Yes, uh, the ego has a substitute for everything that's real and true, and it has a substitute for love. And the ego's sense of love is might be described as a rising sensation. It's an emotion. It's an elation. This is not something to fear, and if you have it, uh, then you have it. And, of course, most of us do have it about something or s some things. Maybe, maybe you have it about animals or something. It, 
it's an emotion, uh, it's sort of an elation and so forth that you need not fear, but notice that it excludes. This is how you tell it's not real love. It excludes. It is very good to assume that you do not know what real love is. This is a very good position to take. Just say, I don't know what real love is, but I want to know what real love is. <clears throat> Let me break right there for a second and, and uh, tell you a little story about uh, Muhammad. Um, Muhammad went up to God and got uh, the doctrines of uh, Islam and got instruction from God as to how he is to conduct this, <coughs> this faith, if you'd like to call it faith or religion or way or however you'd like to speak of it. And God said, have your people pray 50 times a day. And so he left the presence of God, and as he was coming back to earth, he ran into Moses. This is part of the Islam tradition, the story that I'm telling you. And Moses said, uh, what, did, what did God say to you? And uh, Muhammad said uh, that I'm to have my people pray 50 times. Oh, that's not going to work. I, I tried that with the Israelites. I can tell you it's totally impractical. Go back to God and tell him this isn't going to work. He's got to cut the number down. And so uh, Muhammad went back to God, and uh, God cut down the number to 40. He came back. Moses said, what did he say? <laughs> And uh, Muhammad said, uh, 40, it's not going to work. I can tell you, I tried 40 on the Israelites, they wouldn't do it. Go back again. So Muhammad went back again, this went back and forth until he got it down to five. Uh, came back down and Moses said, five will never work. I can tell you from experience. And Muhammad said, I just can't go back to him again. I am, I am so embarrassed about this. My people are not the Israelites. They can pray five times a day. And so, the Muslims pray five times a day. Now, in, this, in the little book where I read this story, which is called Around the, Around the Bend by Neville Shute, uh, it's a novel, real nice novel. It's about a mechanic who dispenses spirituality to other Mechanics. He's an airplane mechanic, and while he's working on the plane, he, he's a teacher of God. It's just a wonderful, wonderful story. And what he tells them to do every time they do a little procedure on an airplane, such as change a gasket or so forth, he tells them that they are educated men, and that the five times a day is just fine for the, 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 uh, the nomads and so forth, but they're educated men. They can pray 50 times a day. And the way to do it is that every time they complete a job is to take half a minute and turn to God and ask God, was the job well done? Is the work good? And if the work is not good, you do it over. And then you do it, then you pray once again. 
And he said, if you will do this with every procedure in the airplane, he said, you will have prayed 50 times a day. Well, the interesting thing about reading this passage, I know you know you've had these coincidences all the time in your own life, is that a few days before I read that passage in this novel, I had decided to stop half a minute every time I thought of it and just to stand right where I was and to quiet my mind. So here's the little procedure, and that is I would stop. I'm still doing this. I stop, and I still my mind so that my mind is as silent as it can be for half a minute, 30 seconds. And then I remind myself of the truth. And the truth is, I want to know God. We are surrounded by God and we don't know God. And the only thing that keeps us from knowing God, the presence of God, is that we don't mean it yet. We don't yet mean it. But if you will start acting like you mean it, you will begin to mean it. And one way to act like you mean it is to say to yourself, I want to know my Father. I want to know God. I'm going to ask you to do that with me now. I'm going to ask you to, first of all, still your mind, to be as quiet as you can. You don't have to be perfectly quiet, but be as quiet as you can inside your mind. Just as still as a, as a pond with, with not a single ruffle of the wave. As clear as glass for 30 seconds and then to yourself say, I want to know reality. I want to know God. I want to know my Father. I want to know where I am. Whatever words come to you. Okay, the 30 seconds are up now. With your eyes still closed, say the words to yourself. Okay. Now, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just wonderful? That was only 30 seconds. Do you feel how much closer you are to God in just 30 seconds? You can do that a thousand times a day. You can't do that too much. If you can stop physically to do it, that's even better. But do it in the middle of a conversation. Remind yourself that more than any of this crazy stuff that's going on, 
You want to know your father. You want to know your home. You want to know what you are. We are waking up from a dream. We are not isolated bodies that are dying in decay, lonely, misunderstood, not getting the breaks in life that we thought we would. You are a part of God. 